0: He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for His name's sake. What's the thing you've been searching for your entire life? What if the wisdom or the power that you seek isn't hidden in some distant land waiting to be discovered, but it's actually been available to you for thousands of years? and you just haven't known where to look. What if the kickstart you've been looking for in your spiritual life is waiting for you? Not waiting in the new and shiny, but waiting in the old and ancient. Waiting in traditions that have been taking place in the church for centuries. In the stillness and the quiet of these traditions, God reveals himself to us. And in the asking, we find out that He's always been there waiting, waiting in the simple traditions of the church. Beyond the past, beyond the present, beyond the future. They're timeless. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. How is everyone? Good. My name is Chase. I am one of the pastors around here. I am uh, super excited to beginning a brand new sermon series that we're calling Timeless uh, with you this weekend and here's why I'm so excited. Uh, we live in a world that is obsessed with new with new things, with new ways of doing things, with new ways of ordering things, and new ways of getting things. Uh, Just last week, I started a brand new cell phone plan at a different company, so I walked in. I did all the paperwork and stuff, and at the end, I said, hey, just give me the phone that comes free with the plan. I don't really need any new new, new phone, and his jaw just kind of dropped. He's like, what are you kidding me? We have 15 new phones that came out this week. Let me show you, and so he showed me. He showed me the new Google phone. He showed me the new Android phone. I remember when the first iPhone came out. You guys remember that? My first phone was a Nextel brick with like a walkie-talkie. They were real popular in Union County back in uh, 1990-something. But uh, he showed me the new iPhone 8, the 9, the 10, the 11, and every single phone he showed me said, he said, this will radically change your life. How can you live without the slow-mo selfie of the iPhone 11? And I'm like, I'm just learning that selfies moved. Like I thought they were still, didn't know you had to slow them down, so I'm good. I'll stick with the free phone, and I did. Um, But that's the world that we live in. Uh, We are obsessed with new things, there's new diets, there's new exercise routines, new forms of communication, uh, new causes to get behind, new cars, New homes, new tech that goes in those cars, and those homes, there's new software updates, there's new notifications, there's new terms and conditions. Uh, I confessed this to the Raleigh campus a few months ago, so for all the you guys that don't go to our Raleigh campus, um, last year was a banner year in the life of Chase Gardner because I started watching sports. And some of you guys are like, Like a different sport? Like you stop watching football? No, I've just, I've never watched uh, any sport at all. I haven't had cable in 13 years. So it's hard to follow sports when you don't have cable. So my wife came to me, it was like the fourth or fifth week of the football season. I know that now, but she said, Chase, we are not in Asheville anymore. Uh, I'm looking around and the amount of football fans outweighs the amount of Grateful Dead fans as far as I can tell. So why don't you start watching football so you have something in common with the people that you minister to? So I I did, I can be a little obsessive. So I set up cable that day um, and I set the DVR to record every single college football game and NFL game that weekend. Some of you are laughing, I had no idea. So I go to sleep Friday night. I wake up Saturday morning, do some family stuff, and then I come and serve at our services, our Saturday night services at the Raleigh campus, and I get home at like eight o'clock, make a snack, turn on my DVR, and I'm like, 85 games? This is why you guys don't go to church. You have 85 games to watch every single weekend. And I'm like, this is undoable. So I'm a 35 year old man. I had to call my dad and say, can you explain how to watch football, sir? And he said, yeah. So uh, he explained these things called conferences, which I didn't know existed before. And he told me which teams to root for. So I did for a while and those teams stunk and I just hopped on bandwagon. So Clemson all the way and Kansas City. So I'm rolling with Mahomes. I can do that. I'm new. I can jump on any bandwagon that I want to. But Um, I will keep you updated with my uh, sports journey, but when I started watching these football games, do you know what amazed me the most, what really stood out? Not the athleticism and the thrill of the game. I still don't know what a run pass option is, and no one will explain it to me. It was the commercials. I haven't had cable in 13 years. So when I turned on that football game, it was like I was transported into like a sci-fi future. You guys know that you can order a car on a phone app and then go pick it up out of a car vending machine. You can. That's like space age stuff. I didn't know that. Do you guys know that scientists have invented a mirror that is like a wormhole into a fitness dimension? And like you hang it on your wall and you, you boot it up, and this trainer comes up and you can see the trainer and you can see yourself and do that's crazy. That's like sci-fi stuff. You guys know there's this little blue pill that guys could never mind, I'm in church. It's hope, it's still church. I'll tell you about it afterwards, though, it's interesting, <laughs> uh, anyway, it's amazing stuff, right? And it, 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 it floored me, all of this incredible stuff, and I was absolutely amazed for the first few days. Now, after watching for a few months, I know there's a Nordic track, and there's a Peloton, and there's a rowing machine that's just like that mirror, that something new comes out every single week, and now, I do what all of you do, which is, Fast forward through the commercials, unless it's a funny one that I wanna re-see again, or I get up and get a snack, because in a world where everything is new and life-changing, slowly nothing is new and life-changing anymore. Everything is just one more attempt to get my money. But that's the world that we live in. There's so much new and so much constant change, and I found that it's actually wearing on us. In a world that is filled with texts and tweets, we long for a conversation with a real person, in a world with 50 new self-help books coming out every single week, uh, we kind of take a step back and think there's no way they can all be true. Like is it atomic habits or is it extreme ownership or is it girl wash your face and can I wash my face because I'm a guy? Like what, what, where's the truth? We want, we want someone to come in and show us not this new wisdom but something that's been time-tested, something that's been proven. There's a longing in all of us that just wants something lasting, something ancient, something that isn't here today and gone tomorrow. And when we're constantly surrounded by a thousand different new and improved options, we want someone just to cut through the noise and just point us down the right path. And that is what I love about Christianity. It's not new. It's not cutting edge. Don't get me wrong, it's relevant. It's always relevant, but it's relevant precisely because it's been around for so long. It's not constantly changing. Uh, We've been around for, this religion has been around for 2,000 years if you just count Christianity, but we're tied to Judaism, which just uh, goes back to the time of Abraham, which is 5, 6, 7,000 years ago. And uh, there's something powerful about that, that the core tenets of our faith haven't changed in all of that time, they're timeless. And many of the things that we do as a church, like communion, or like baptism, Or like showing up to this building for an hour every single weekend. Or reading scripture or prayer. Um, These are ancient traditions. And I believe that God has given us these ancient traditions, these things that tie us to the past, as powerful tools and resources for our spiritual growth. And my fear is that many of us, while we're over here obsessing over the new and the cutting edge, we're completely missing out on the power and the transformative power that these ancient traditions can have. Like a lot of us are praying, God, I wanna love you more. I wanna move your word from my head to my heart. Is there a new book? Is there a new talk? And what God wanna say is, no, 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 that's why I gave you that. That's why Christians have been doing this for a thousand years. Or we say, you know, God, I wanna beat this sin. I wanna be free from this habit or hang up. Is there some, some talk that I can listen to or a new tactic? And God says, no, no, that's why I gave you that. That's why Christians have been doing that for 2,000 years. So I don't think that we need a new book, or a new talk, or a new conference. I think that God has given us absolutely everything that we need to grow by leaps and bounds, and he's given us that power partially in the form of these timeless traditions. And I know that that's a bold claim, but I think that you're gonna come to believe this um, as well as we take a few weeks to dust off the cover of some of these ancient traditions like communion, like baptism, like gathering here on the weekends. And I believe that if you take the time to truly understand these traditions, then they'll become not these boring rituals that we have to do or even these, these optional things that we can choose to do or not do, but powerful tools that God can use to transform your life. Things that kind of cut through the noise of the new and ground us in timeless wisdom. And let me just say this, too. If this is your first time in church for a while, if you're kind of kicking the tires of Christianity, you just came with a friend this weekend, first off, welcome. Uh, We hope that you feel loved and accepted and that you can kind of have some of your questions answered, take as long as you need. We just love the fact that you're here. But second, I think that this is a great series for you. Uh, We're going to be going through some things that every single Christian church does, like communion, like baptism. And these things have a way of revealing the heart of Christianity, what what this religion is all about at its core. And so I think you showed up on a great weekend. So uh, we're going to launch right into it this week with one of the most uh, overlooked and uh, sometimes confusing things that we do here at Hope, which is communion. So you guys ever hear us announce it is communion weekend, we'd love for you to join us outside after the service. You've heard that before, yep. So communion is where we drink the juice and we eat um, the bread. And we do this every single month here at Hope. Um, But we do it after the service, so I'm guessing, because I know you hope, folks, uh, a large percentage of you don't take advantage of that because you want to get on the shuttle, you want to get to your car, you want to get to dinner on time or to lunch on time, so you're missing out on this amazing spiritual growth um, opportunity. But I also know that we have a large portion of our congregation that is former Catholic or recovering Catholic, as you guys call yourselves, and uh, you grew up with a different view of communion than what we believe, so there's probably some confusion there as well. And so this weekend, what I wanna do is I wanna uh, attempt to explain what communion is, where we got this ancient tradition, and how you can use our monthly communion celebration to really empower your walk with God. Okay, does that sound good? It sounds simple enough, it's not. Uh, Communion's a little bit complicated, so here's the deal. I'm gonna need you guys to lean in. You're gonna have to use your brains and think hard, but I promise, at the end, if you do that, you're gonna come to a newfound understanding of what communion is all about, and I think you'll come uh, to, to a greater sense of thankfulness and awe and what exactly it is that Jesus Christ accomplished for us, okay? That's my promise. So uh, I think the best place to start is in Luke chapter 22. So go ahead and turn there's in, in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. Um, We're gonna provide you with the verses on the side screens. We'd actually love to give you a Bible, but it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book in the New Testament, and as you're turning there, here's kind of the big idea. Communion is really Jesus' take or rendition on something called the Passover meal, and so communion, the first one that he goes through, it's when he takes the Passover meal, which is all about the Israelites, and he changes it in some specific specific ways to make it all about himself. So, if you had no idea what Passover was, and you picked up your Bible and read in Luke chapter 22, you would have no idea what Jesus is doing or talking about. So we have to understand what the Passover meal is in order to understand communion. Now the Passover goes all the way back to the Exodus. You guys remember Exodus? So like Moses, let my people go, Pharaoh, that thing. Uh, Well, if you remember, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for about 430 years. Um, and uh, God had heard their groanings, their cry, and he sent Moses to go to Pharaoh to say, hey, Pharaoh, let these Israelites go so they can go worship me in the way that I instruct them. And Pharaoh kept saying no. And so in order to make Pharaoh relent, God sent plagues. You guys know how many plagues he sent? Ten, that's right. You guys watch the Disney, Disney movie? That's great. Um, ten plagues. The last one was the worst. It was the plague of the firstborn. And it's where the angel of death would come into the city of Egypt and it would strike down every firstborn male, whether that be an animal or whether it be a human being. And God told the Israelites, you can escape this plague if you sacrifice a lamb and you take the blood of that lamb and you spread it on your doorpost. If you do that, then when the angel of death comes into the city, it will see that blood on the doorpost and pass over that house. That's how we get the term Passover. And um, if you know, that, that's what they did. If you know the rest of the story, um, after that plague, Israel was spared. Um, this was sort of the, the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to Pharaoh. So Pharaoh finally relented, um, said you guys get out of here. Israel left, walked through the Red Sea on dry land and made their way to the base of Mount Sinai. And we're gonna pick up that story in a little bit. But every year after those events, Israelites would get together and have a special meal called the Passover meal in order to remember and celebrate what God had done. Because in their minds, this was the greatest thing that God had ever done for his people. Passed over and allowed them to to be freed from their slavery in Egypt. Now, anybody ever been to a Passover meal? called Seder. Um, The Passover meal is pretty complicated. Um, It takes about 15 steps to go through this meal um, appropriately, and we do not have time to go into all 15 steps, unless you want me to. You want me to go into it? Good, because I don't know them all. Each step is basically composed of eating some sort of uh, food or drink and then the host explaining the significance of that. And then they eat or drink something else and then the host um, kind of explains the significance of it. So let me kind of simplify it for you. There's two main elements when it comes to the Passover meal. There's wine and there's bread. Uh, So there's four cups of wine that you drink um, during this meal and they sort of divide the Passover meal into four different sections. So to kick the meal off, you have a cup of wine and then the host, uh, you eat or drink something and the host does some teaching. Then you have another glass of wine, you eat or drink something, the host does some teaching. Then you have the main Passover meal where every single item on that plate points back to the Exodus and you drink a third cup of wine along with that. And then as the evenings close, the host says a blessing and you celebrate with a fourth and final cup of wine. So there's four cups of wine. And that's why if you read about the very first communion in Matthew and Mark, there is one cup. And then you read about it in Luke, there's two cups. There's actually four cups of wine. You're required to drink four cups of wine. And some of you are like, that's a good start, right? Some of you are like, I should convert to Judaism, four cups of wine. But um, each cup of wine had a different meaning in and of itself, but as a whole, they're meant to remind Israel of one thing. What do you think that one thing is? It's a dark red liquid. The blood of the lamb, okay? That the the angel of death passed over their house with. Yeah, so the red wine is supposed to remind them of the blood of the lamb. And then there's the bread. And the bread was eaten about three different times before the main meal, and it was unleavened bread. So it really was like the cracker that we have at communion. And they would eat the unleavened bread with bitter herbs. So it's supposed to taste bad. And so they would eat this bread and this bitter herbs, and every time they would, the host would say, this is the bread of our affliction. It's supposed to remind them of the suffering that they went through in Egypt. So when they eat it, they're supposed to think, ugh, this is bad, just like the 400 years that we spent in Egypt, okay? So that's the Passover meal in a nutshell. You got the wine, you got the bread, and all of this was to remind them or take them back to the most important thing that God had ever done, rescuing from their their slavery in Egypt. And Jewish people still do this today, called the Seder meal. Um, So in Luke 22, this is what we see happening. Well over 200,000 Jewish people would have flocked to the town of Jerusalem um, to celebrate this Passover meal. Jesus and his disciples are here. Uh, They would have all slaughtered a lamb by 3 o'clock and gone back to their dwellings, their lodging, to make this meal. And this is what Luke is talking about in Luke 22. So Jesus and and his disciples have arrived. Uh, Peter and John have prepared an upper room, a secret room, so that Jesus won't get arrested. And they provided the meal. Let's pick it up in verse 14. Now you're going to understand what Jesus does. Verse 14 says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So that's the first cup, okay? Then they go through a few rituals, then look at verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is not the bread of our affliction. Right? This isn't about the suffering of the Israelites in Egypt. But what does he change it to? He says, this is my body, which is given for you. So do this in remembrance of what? Of me. So you can see what he's doing. He's, he's reinterpreting the bread and really the whole meal, So the bread was meant to remind the Israelites of their suffering, but Jesus takes that symbol and says, no, 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 from now on, this is going to be a reminder of my suffering. Now the disciples have no idea about the suffering that Jesus is talking about here. But we do, because we can look back and we know that just a few hours from this meal, as Jesus is praying in the Mount of Olives, Judas will betray him. And some armed guards will take him into custody, and while they're taking him to a holding place, they'll beat him. And when they finally get him to a central holding place, um, 20, 30, maybe 40 soldiers decide to make fun of him, and so they sit Jesus down, they blindfold him, and they say, you say you're a prophet, we'll prophesy which one of us is striking you, and they line up and they just beat him in the face over and over and over again, probably breaking the nose and the cheekbones. They spit on him, they pull out his beard, which is the supreme act of disrespect in the Roman world. Then the Jews call out for him to be crucified, but Pilate doesn't wanna do that. He just says, maybe if we just flog him, the Jews will be content with that, and so they take Jesus to a courtyard. They tie his hands above his head. They strip him um, down to just his underwear, and then an experienced executioner or torturer takes a cat of nine tails, which is a short whip with nine different tails with lead balls at the end, and interspersed in between his bone shards and glass and rocks. And the Jews had a rule that you couldn't strike someone with this more than 39 times, but the Romans did not care. So 40, 50, 60 times they strike his back and at first the skin begins to tear and eventually the muscle begins to tear and the bones exposed all along his back and his ribcage and his leg. And then when he's nearly dead, um, they stop and they take Jesus' body and they cover it in a purple robe which is the color of kings, they put a crown of thorn on his head, they give him a scepter, and they begin to make fun of him because he proclaimed to be the king of the Jews. And they take that scepter and they beat him in the head and they drive that crown of thorns deeper into his skull. And then just when that purple robe had clotted to those wounds, they rip it off again and expose all those wounds anew. Then they put a crossbeam on his back and tell him to march towards Golgotha, and he can't, he does not have the strength to do that, so Simon helps him. And then when he gets to Golgotha, they make him lay down with that exposed back onto a rough wooden crossbeam. They put a nail through both wrists. They put one nail through the, the arches of both of his feet, and then they put that cross and they set it in that hole, and as soon as it sinks, all of Christ's weight had to rest on those two nails in his wrists. And then for six hours, he had to fight to get a breath. That's how you die on the cross, it's through suffocation. And so every time he wanted to breathe, he had to put all of the weight on that one nail in his feet, and then sink back down till all of that weight was again on those two nails in his wrist over and over and over again. Until finally, six hours later, he's run out of oxygen, his muscles are cramping, he doesn't have the strength, he takes one last breath, says, it is finished, Into your hands I commit my spirit and he breathes his last. And as if to make sure, they take a a spear and they shove it in between his ribs and pierce his heart and blood and water flow out, proving that he drowned in his own bodily fluids. And the entire time, he's naked, he's ridiculed, he's taunted. All of his disciples have deserted him except for John. And the worst of this is that during the last few moments on the cross, as he becomes sin, the embodiment of sin to pay that for us, he is separated from his heavenly father. This is the limit of physical and emotional and spiritual suffering. And so as Christ passes out the bread and he tears pieces off of it, he says, from now on, this torn bread is going to remind you of my torn body. So when you hold the cracker in your hand during communion, you're meant to remember anew the sufferings that Jesus went through. And not just the fact that he suffered, but the reason behind that suffering. I have friends that aren't yet believers in Christ and they ask me all the time, why did that have to happen? Why did Jesus have to suffer at all? Why couldn't God just forgive without putting Jesus through all of that incredible pain? And the reason is, is because God is holy. He has to punish sin. If he were to just wipe it under the rug, he would not be just. And so um, the debt that we owed God, that penalty that we owed God, it had to be paid and paid in full. And if he were to make us pay it, then we would have to undergo that suffering. We would have to experience that death and that separation from him. But God is so gracious and so merciful and Jesus is so loving that instead of insisting that we pay that debt, Jesus came to pay that debt for us. So when we hold that cracker in our hands, we should think that suffering should have been my suffering. That death should have been my death, but Jesus willingly went through it instead of us. And so Jesus says, from now on, this is the bread of my affliction. This is about me, I am the center of this. So from now on, do this, in remembrance of me. When we eat the bread or the cracker, that's what we're supposed to be thinking of. Now Jesus continues the feast, and they eat the meal, and they have the third glass of wine, and then after, when it comes to the the fourth of the cups of wine, he changes the feast in one more way. He changes the fourth cup of wine, and at first glance, you might just be thinking, he's just adding to what he just said about his sufferings, right? Here's my body which is broken for you. Well, here's the blood that comes out of that body as well. So the blood's supposed to remind you of my suffering as well, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying something completely different. Look at verse 20. He said, and likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Okay, the key term there is new covenant. I want you to turn with me to Exodus, chapter 24. I told you you'd have to think hard. It'll be worth it, I promise, okay? Exodus 24. After the Israelites get out of Egypt and they make their way to the base of Mount Sinai, God has to teach them how to have a relationship with them. They've been in Egypt for 400 years, hanging out with Egyptian gods, and the one true God is very, very different. So he calls Moses up to the top of Mount Sinai, and he explains how this new relationship is gonna work. And what he does with Moses on top of Mount Sinai is he basically writes up a contract. And this is where Moses gets the Ten Commandments and also about 500 other rules and laws and commandments. And uh, in this contract or this covenant, Israel has their part to play and God has his part to play. And if both parts, uh, parties uphold their end of the contract, then relationship is gonna be possible. And so Israel's job is to obey every single rule and every single regulation that God gives them. And God's job is to lead them and guide them and protect them and give them meaning and purpose and direction. So that's the contract, that's the covenant. God says, if you do this Israel, then I will love you and protect you and forgive you and guide you and be with you. If you don't, then I won't. Now in our day, How do we make sure that a a contract's legit? How do we set it? We get a witness, we sign it uh, in the the presence of a notary, right, and then they sign it on the bottom. Well, they did things a little bit differently in Moses' day. Look at verse three. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And so Moses says, okay, let's make this official. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant And he read it in the hearing of the people. So he reads the contract out loud. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the other half of the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words, okay? So when Moses takes half the blood and throws it on the altar, that's like God signing his name on the bottom of the contract. And when Moses takes the other half of the blood and throws it on the people, that's like them signing their name on the bottom of the contract, which makes you thankful for like ink pens and notaries. That's pretty good. But uh, there's a huge problem with this contract, with this covenant. You know what it is? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Israel, people, human beings, can't keep their end of the bargain. The whole Bible is basically the story of people trying to keep their end of the bargain, but failing and failing. Look what they say, they say it twice. They say, we'll do it, we can do it. There's a lot of rules and regulations, but we think we got this. They don't know this, but when they say that, they are signing their name to a check that they can't cash. And many of the stories that we have in the Old Testament are the sad stories of people desperately trying to uphold their end of the deal so that they can have a relationship with God, so that he will love them and protect them, but failing over and over again. Now, he gives them grace at certain times. He forgives them, but when we get to the end of the Old Testament, it's a story without an end. It ends with all of humanity just kind of coming to the conclusion, we can't do this. We can't do this. So how in the world is a relationship with God the one thing that we need, the one thing that we were created for, how is that gonna be possible? And it's not just us that wants this. God wants this too. Well, as it turns out, God knew exactly how something like this was gonna be possible. How is this possible when we can't uphold our end of the bargain? Well, it's simple. God will uphold our end of the contract for us. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He was completely without sin. He obeyed every single rule and regulation that God had set up. And when he died on that cross and his blood spilled out and covered the cross or the altar, it's like Jesus walked over to that old contract and erased your name and erased your name and erased my name and in big red letters he wrote Jesus Christ. And God formed a new contract. He updated the terms and conditions by which we can have a relationship with him. Now God says, I will care for you and be near to you and protect you and guide you and I'll give you meaning and purpose and love you freely if, if, Jesus upholds his end of the bargain. And he did, you see that? That's what the cup means. It means there's a new contract, a new agreement about how we can have a relationship with God. And it ain't got squat to do with you and me and everything to do with Jesus. One of the last things that Jesus said on the cross is it is finished. What is finished? All doing and not doing for acceptance with God. There's a new contract. Nothing is in the way of God's free love and relationship with him. You see that? That's what the bread means. That's what the cup means. The bread he suffered in my place. There's no penalty that I owe God now. The cup, he lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. Nothing is blocking my way to God. And this, the life and death of Jesus Christ, this, not the Exodus, this is the most important thing that God has ever done for his people. And this is what he wants us to remember. You See that? Even the way God told us to remember these truths is instructive. He could have just said, hey, once a month, I want you to recite two verses 13 times. Or, hey, once a month, I want you to sing this song three times when you're at church. But instead, he said, no, I want you to eat something and drink something. What's the two things that you have to have if you're gonna live? Food and drink, right? You don't need a car. You don't need money. You don't need a house. You don't necessarily even need clothes. If you don't believe that last point, I'll take you up to Asheville and prove it to you. But um, in order to have life, you need food and drink. You see that? From the blood of Jesus, from the death of Jesus, we get life. And even the way we're commanded to, to partake in communion is instructive. Each month when we say it's communion, do we say, hey, go on up and get communion? Go work for your portion of communion or go and place an order for communion? Or what do we say? We say we invite you to take communion, to receive communion, sometimes to celebrate communion because that's how you get in on this whole Jesus in my place, new covenant thing. You just open up your hands and you receive it with joy, with celebration, And every single time that we do that, every single time that we put that juice and that bread in our mouth and we swallow, it's meant to give us this light bulb moment. It's meant to jolt us and just remind us, oh, Jesus did it all. No, I don't have to. And we need that light bulb moment. We need that jolt to the system often. Do you know why? You know why God commands us to remember this? It's pretty easy. Because we forget. We are so incredibly good at forgetting this. Some of you were just amen a few minutes ago. Amen, Jesus did it all. Amen, he lived the life I couldn't live. When meanwhile, you walked into church tonight tired and beaten up because for the past six days, you've been desperately trying to earn his love and earn his acceptance. We forget this. All of us do. We have this horrible habit of waking up every morning and trying to do what Jesus has already done, don't we? Some of you are in church right now this weekend because you're hoping you'll earn a little bit more acceptance or love. Some of you are gonna leave here um, and maybe go serve at the next service or maybe you served the previous service and really it is the last thing that you wanna do but you did something pretty bad on Thursday and you got some sins to make up for, so that's what you're doing, right? And we can kind of laugh at this, but some of you folks are like me, and I don't know why I'm this way, but my (laughs) go-to default emotion is shame. And I kind of know why. There's some stuff that happened in my past, but my my default emotion is shame. And any time that I mess up, or any time that I don't hit the standard that I set for myself, any time that I don't do something perfectly, I just beat myself up. And in those moments, I tend to hide from people and I tend to hide from God until I can kind of pull it all together. Okay, it's been 20 years and I still haven't been able to pull it all together enough. And what God wants me to know is that He is not waiting for me to pull it all together. Jesus did that. God's waiting for me to receive that. You know, I have two beautiful daughters, uh, Reese and Rory. Um, they just turned 10 and 11. You guys can pray for me as we head into the teenage years. But um, you know what would tear me up is if I looked at one of my daughters in the eyes and I said, hey, sweeties, you know that I love you? And if she responded, no, you don't. You could never love someone like me. My grades are bad. I haven't practiced my recorder in like two weeks. My room's a mess. Wait till I get it all together. Maybe, maybe one day you'll love me, but you don't, you don't love me. Now, that, that would tear me up to have a daughter that doesn't receive or accept my love. Some of the best times as a father is at night when I kiss my girls to sleep and I look at them and say, hey, I love you, you know that? And they say, yeah, I do, I love you too, right? Tons of us are living lives where we just refuse to accept the love and the acceptance that God offers us through Jesus. And that's what communion is. It's a time where we, we come before the creator of the universe with all of our mess, and we physically and spiritually open our hands and receive his love or his acceptance. That's what communion, that, that word really means. Have you lost that joy? Have you lost that sense of rest and that sort of sense of contentment? Has your, has your spiritual life, your relationship with God, turned into work? Has it turned into drudgery? Is there a little bit of fear mixed in there? It's because you forgot and you need that reminder. I remember when I first grasped how powerful communion was, I was in um, college, and I was at a Wednesday night church service, and it was a Christian school, it's Liberty University, don't judge me, but um, I went there, and there were a 1,000 college students at this church service, and something about the song before we took communion just reminded me what communion was all about, and I'll never forget that night, I just went through this roller coaster of emotions. I remember, as soon as I took the bread and as soon as I took the the cup, I remember just having this incredible feeling of unworthiness. Just thinking like, who am I to hold the life and the death of Jesus Christ in my hands? Like, who the heck am I? I do not deserve this. And I remember crying honestly just sitting there for five or six minutes and crying and saying, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this, I don't deserve this. And I still remember it to this day. I clearly remember God, not speaking audibly, but the spirit sort of whispering, Chase, you don't deserve it. You never have deserved it and you never will deserve it and that is the point. I don't love deserving people because there's no such thing. And I don't give life to deserving people because there's no such thing. I love you. I came to give you life. I want you to take that and receive it. So eat, drink, and have life. And I remember just this wave of, of gratefulness and thankfulness and joy just washing over me. And I stood and I sang worship for as long as they let me two or three songs after that. And then I remember that when I walked out of that building, my life was different that week. No longer was I living and trying to earn that acceptance, but I was living and loving response to the acceptance and grace that God already had for me in Christ. And that's what he wants from all of us. And so, in just a few moments, I wanna give us space to do that. And we've been talking a lot about what Jesus has done for us. And I think the appropriate thing to do is to stand and just give him the thanks and the worship that he deserves. And so I wanna give us space just to worship the amazing Savior that we have. And then after that, we're gonna dismiss you guys. And all of our campuses are gonna make, we're gonna make communion available after the services. Um, and uh, obviously this is between um, a Savior and a person who is saved, and so we would say that if you would proclaim to be a Christ follower, we would love to have you join us. Um, If you're not a Christ follower, we're glad that you're here. Um, I want to personally ask you just to sit this one out. Um, There's a few, there's just some, it's between us and our Savior. We take it very, very seriously, but I will say this. If you're here this evening, and you have not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you haven't taken that step, just because you can't have the symbol doesn't mean you can't have the real thing. You can. You can have the thing that communion points to. And if that's you, I wanna lead you in a prayer. Um, just a simple way for you to, to, to um, begin a relationship with the God of the universe that so wants to be in a relationship with you. So let's bow our heads across all of our campuses. Bow our heads and close our eyes. If that's you, um, this weekend, and you haven't made that decision to trust in Christ, to follow after Christ, I just want you to know that, that um, maybe you're not staying up late at night worried about your guilt before a holy God, I get that. Maybe you're not, you're not seeking out the solution for that, but maybe if you're honest, you'd say, I, I am looking for a little bit of joy, I am looking for a little bit of contentment, I can't seem to find this thing that the Bible calls life And I just want you to know that God um, offers that freely, (laughs) that only Jesus has the ability to give you what you're searching for. And so if that's you, maybe pray something like this. And there's nothing special about this prayer, but just say, God, I'm empty, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry. I've been looking everywhere for for life, for meaning, for purpose, and I've come up empty-handed. But I heard that you want to offer that to me this weekend. And I've heard that Jesus lived the life that I couldn't and that he died the death that I should have. And that if I just believe that Jesus has done it all, you'll welcome me into your family. And so would you forgive my sins and make me your son, make me your daughter? I receive that, I take that. Amen, let's keep our heads bowed. If that was you, I would encourage you to tell someone about that. Maybe tell the person that brought you or step out and talk to one of our leaders. But for everyone else, let me just pray for you. Father, (laughs) thank you for the reminder of Jesus. God, we forget so often. I pray that you give us rest, that you give us peace, that you'd energize us and remind us of all that Jesus has been and done for us. God, may we be in awe of the love and the grace and the mercy, mercy and the sufficiency of all that you've done, Jesus. May you receive the glory and the worship that is due your name right now. It's in your beautiful name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's message. We are so excited to be a small part of all the great things that God is doing in and through your life. If you would like to take the next step in your spiritual journey, download the Hope app to find out ways to connect, opportunities to serve, and other resources. And if you'd like to contribute financially to our vision of reaching the triangle and changing the world, visit us at gethope.net slash giving. Thank you for your commitment to resourcing hope as we love people where they are and encourage them to grow in their relationship with Jesus.